Um, yeah, the supremacy of Christ. Well, okay, so uh, let me start. Let me start by. You're not supposed to start with an apology, right? I just. We're, we're starting the book of Hebrews this morning. We're going to start in a passage, the very first passage that I'm going to read momentarily, that is majestic. It's, it's awesome. And so I've, I have to apologize because I, I just don't know how to represent that. And maybe the good thing is I don't need to, and, and that's okay. But I want to. I, I want to speak a word that is in some way a reflection of this word that sets us on a course of worshipful study of the book of Hebrews. Um, but I fear I'm just going to have to ask, I'm going to have to ask you and the Lord for forgiveness uh, this morning because I think I'm just leaning into my my kind of natural strengths a little bit. So we'll see how professorial this turns out, right? But uh, there's some danger in asking me to do an introduction to a book. John paid me a compliment last week. He said that um, whereas he, he focuses more on the details, I'm good at the big picture. Um, maybe so, but I'm hoping that we don't zoom out too much here because I do want us to stay in this amazing opening of the book of Hebrews. And I want, us to, I want us to capture a vision of the supremacy of Christ this morning. We've been singing about that effectively. The supremacy of Christ. But, but it has radical implications. It's our confession perhaps our hope, but it's practical. It has really profound implications that I think the author of the book of Hebrews is at pains to explore in his moment. And so we have received in the canon of Scripture this amazing document that is very challenging. (laughs) It's very, very difficult to understand. And so we're going to, this morning, I'm, we're going to make an effort to start down the road here of opening this up together and envisioning what the writer envisions, which is our Lord exalted and worthy and near and caring Jesus, the particular Jesus who is supreme over all things. So let me start with a, a quotation from James Moffat. He was a Scottish churchman early in the 20th century. He says about the book of Hebrews, or the author anyway, What he writes is not a theological treatise in cold blood, but a statement of the faith, alive with practical interest. Nothing is more practical in religion than an idea, a relevant idea, powerfully urged. I think that's true. I think a lot of people don't think that's true. I think a lot of people feel a strong, a sharp dichotomy between practical things and ideas. But I think, the, I think that if you believe that, the author of Hebrews is going to prove you wrong. I think there is a, power, a relevant idea here powerfully urged upon us. And more than that, it's coming not from the author of Hebrews, but from our Lord himself. Not from me, but from Jesus. Because God speaks. Listen, long ago, you can go to the next slide. 
Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hopefully you're already puzzled. How many of us have said something like, um, Jesus is much superior to angels and his name is much superior to theirs? Have you ever sung a song to that effect? Ever used those sorts of phrases? It's a strange way of talking for us. And that strangeness is only going to deepen and expand as we move into the book of Hebrews. Um, Fortunately, I'm stopping in verse 4 this morning, so I don't have to deal with all the angel stuff. But this is this is the point. I mean, there's there's so much that is beautiful in these ideas, even though they're they're strange to us. So much to open up and be edified by, and encouraged by, and that's what the Hebrew author wants. He refers to this writing much later in chapter 13 as a word of encouragement or exhortation, a word saying. Come on now. He wants to encourage us. And so we're going to have to do a little bit of work to be encouraged by some of these interesting comparisons. But they are comparisons because this is the idea that's going to run through the whole book. Jesus is superior. Superior to angels. Superior to Moses superior to the priesthood of Aaron, superior to the sacrifices, superior to the shadow of the presence of God, superior in all ways. He is supreme. Now lean into that confession this morning. We, we can say something like that, But I think the Hebrew author really wants us to believe in the very depths of our being this truth. And he's worried that we might not. He's worried about our faith. Because there are so many good things There are so many good things in our lives, religiously, spiritually, relationally, and on down the list. There are things that are sublime, art, nature, the best conversation you've ever had. There are things that make you go, wow, this, this is so good. And Jesus is supreme over all of that. Do we feel that? Can we feel that? Through an idea powerfully urged. Here's this idea. In these last days, go to the next one, he has spoken to us by a son. I think this is the heart of the idea. 
In these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. Now, there's plenty to unpack here. But I want you to recognize where it locates us. Because we are still them. This word is for us. We are the church. He's spoken to us in these last days. You comfortable that we're in the last days? After 2,000 years? It's a fair question. Last in what sense? <laughs> last in what sense? But he's spoken to us in these last days by a son. A son. A different kind of messenger. One that speaks a word no other has been able to speak. One that is a word to us that none other has been for us. And so, so we lean in. And we listen. What I want to do in order to unpack this really dense statement is look at three issues. One is our challenges. And these are various because relevant ideas are difficult ideas. I think that's true. I think I'll show you that that's true. And a need for caution because we're shaped by history to hear the book of Hebrews in a way that can be not just wrong, but deadly dangerous. And then I want to look at the gist of Hebrews, that big picture, so that we can have a sense of the theological contours as we dive in in the weeks to come. So first of all, our challenges. I think there are basically three, probably more, but, you know, three good ones. Solid food. Well, in chapter 5, we're going to see uh, momentarily, we'll read it together. Uh, the, the author says that we have much to say that is hard to explain. And there's no way around that. There's no way around that for us. It was hard to explain to them, and we have additional reasons that it's hard to explain, lo, these 2,000 years later. This is not easygoing. And I, I'm actually excited about that. I'm, I'm really excited about that because... I do worry sometimes that we do a lot of pre-chewing for the church. Um, and that, that infantile nourishment is really important. It's really important when you're an infant. And the challenge is, I mean, this is a practical challenge. Truly, the challenge is for anybody who ministers to the church in any capacity is that everybody's at a different place. And when you speak to everyone at once, the impulse is more swallowable. Make it more swallowable so that we catch everybody where they are, right? And we don't make anybody feel like it's over their head or they can't get it or whatever, a good impulse. It's loving. It's caring. It is not serving a large part of the body that doesn't need more milk. But it's a difficult choice to make. It's a difficult choice to make in any given moment. Um, how deep are we going to dive? Are we going to eat this steak? And what I like about the decision to study the book of Hebrews 
is that it's taken away the choice. <laughs> it's taken away the choice. We don't, there's no option. We have to buckle down a little bit and do some thinking. Now, the relevant idea needs to be powerfully urged. There's still, we, there's some, there's some uh, work to be done from up here to facilitate this uh, delightful meal that we're going to enjoy together. Uh, but there's some work that everyone is going to have to do, even if that's just a willingness to sit with some hard ideas for a number of weeks and not pull the chute, right? Not check out. We'll see. Second challenge is that there are some big ideas here. And um, I put a couple of words up there. I've got a longer list for you momentarily, okay? Uh, but these big ideas have big words that are all their own. And again, we, we tend to just avoid introducing new vocabulary. Um, things like newfangled and fancy are often said whenever words like that are used from the pulpit or even Bible class. Um, and even perhaps a little, there's a little, little resentment that I would have to learn new vocabulary what, to be a Christian or something? Well, I think that's hardly the point. It's that we've got big ideas to deal with and words give us a handle on those big ideas. They give us categories. They help us do the cognitive work that is part and parcel of the heart work. It's not separate things. The author of Hebrews is engaged in an unbelievable, unprecedented in the New Testament, interpretive endeavor. He or she, we don't know. Uh, we, we really don't know. Um, I, I really appreciate the, uh, the second century theologian origin concluding on the matter, God only knows who the author of Hebrews is. It's not Paul. We figured that much out. It's not Paul. Uh, the, the writing is too good. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty much everybody's conclusion. Is when you, you read Paul and then when you read Hebrews and the Greek, you recognize that Paul can't do this. He's not capable. Uh, see, he's, he's speaking Greek as a second or third language. Um, and the prose is just gorgeous. And the mastery, the poetic mastery, the language. And, but more than that, the idea that this author endeavors to unpack is, is astounding. And, and, and no small feat. And so it comes with concepts that we could talk around without using big words, but... You know what I say? You learn big words and new words every week. You don't pay attention to it because you do it naturally. In your job context, you don't have any problem learning new terminology. I say, let's learn some new words. We're chewing steak here. Let's learn some new words. No problem. And perhaps the the stickiest problem that we face is that this is a very foreign, this way of, of writing. And all, of, all of Scripture is pretty foreign. We've just gone through Exodus, and by the way, it's really nice the way that the transition from Exodus to Hebrews is going to work for us uh, from, from the lengthy exposition that we, that we enjoyed of the tabernacle and all of its elements and the meaning of that to the argument that the, the author of Hebrews is going to make. Um, really, really nice transition. That stuff was foreign enough. 
And the rest of the New Testament's foreign enough. There's ways of thinking and ways of arguing and values and cultural norms in Scripture that always make us kind of go, wait, what? what is that? Why say it that way? Or what does that mean? Does it make sense to my modern brain? But Hebrews adds something that only, Paul only does in tiny little bursts. And you can sort of easily skip over it as a reader. Hebrews won't allow you to skip over it. He's engaged in a, in a Jewish interpretive practice that's very odd to us. It's not how we tend to approach texts and think about what they mean. It's called Midrash. And so we have to think about that. We don't have a choice. I'm telling you, like, I, I, I recognize that many of you have read the book of Hebrews multiple times and never thought about that word and never worried about Jewish interpretive methods. And I get that. But what I'm saying is you can't hear what this author is saying without contemplating the way that he's saying it. I really believe that. And I know that that's true because I have listened to people talk about the meaning of the book of Hebrews and I've read people talk about the meaning of the book of Hebrews in Christian terms that are absolutely wrong-headed so many times. So many times. It's very easy to draw the wrong conclusions if you don't understand what this author is doing, why he's doing it. So that's part of what I want to... I hope that we accomplish as we study this book together that we could understand why it matters that, that the author interprets in this way. So let's just look at each of those quickly in turn. Solid food. Chapter 5. About this we have much to say that is hard to explain since you have become dull in understanding. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. And I really appreciated what John read this morning in the Shepherd's Blessing, because Paul believes the same thing. He even uses the same analogy one time. But essentially what Paul is saying is, you need to grow, you need to mature into the full stature of Christ, into Christ-likeness. And that's going to require some significant thought. It just is. Because he's talking about ideas here. He's talking about behavior. Right? He's talking about distinguishing good from evil in order to do good, certainly. He's talking about practical wisdom, certainly. But he's not talking about those things in distinction from understanding. Understanding who Christ is, the supremacy of Christ. Understanding what it means that in these last days, God has spoken to us through a son. The depth of that makes a difference for the way that we live. There's nothing more practical in religion than a relevant idea powerfully urged. So we're going to endeavor to wean ourselves a little bit and maybe enjoy some solid food. All right, big ideas. Next one. Many of you have heard these terms just in passing. I'm positive some of you have read books that use these terms. I'm not assuming that this is all novel. But I want you to understand that you gather this morning in a 2,000-year-old tradition of thought in which... The categories of understanding that pertain to our faith have been developed and developed and developed and developed 
in which there is actually a profoundly broad and deep well that helps us to understand Scripture. Schools of thought. And then, of course, the vocabulary that expresses those schools of thought. So we have words like eschatology, right? It's like all the other ologies that you know. You know a lot of ologies. You could name 50 if I gave you enough time, right? It's a study of something, an understanding of something. And eschaton is the Bible word for the end, Right? It's our understanding of the end, of, of the way that things are going to turn out in Christ. Eschatology. Okay. Christology, our understanding of Christ. Right? Understanding that He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And if you thought, how can that be? How can a human, Jesus of Nazareth, be the exact imprint of God's very being? Does that make sense? I thought we were inferior. I thought there was this great chasm between divine and human. If you wondered about that, you're in good company. The church spent a few hundred years banging its head against Christology. Because it's very difficult to grasp everything that this means for us, for what it means to be a human, and what it means for God to be God. God has spoken this word to us in Christ. It's a word that we didn't expect because it comes in this way, in a son. Soteriology. Again, soteria, salvation. Salvationology. Okay? It doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. After you made purification for sin. Okay, so there's some kind of understanding here of Jesus purifying us, making purification. Some kind of understanding of, of sin being relevant to this word that God has spoken. Well, how do we understand all of that? Right? That, that bundle of understanding about salvation, soteriology. Midrash is the Jewish tradition of biblical interpretation. I'll say more about that momentarily, so we'll just leave that there. But I also use the word supersessionism in the previous slide. And I want you to be very clear about what this is, because this is that sort of danger that we face. Supersessionism is the word that scholars and activists use to label the way that the Christian attitude toward Judaism, historically, has ended in violence and death. That our theology, particularly as expressed in something like the book of Hebrews, tends to be that the church has replaced Judaism. Right? Judaism is now defunct. It's, a, it's an illusion or an apostasy or something, something less. But Jews were God's people, and now the church is God's people, and Jews are not. Okay, that's supersessionism. And it's what fuels things like the Holocaust. There are theological justifications underlying the political program in Germany in the middle of the 20th century. So I want us to be very clear as we challenge our naive reading of Hebrews. 
But that's a danger and a mistake. It's a misunderstanding of what this author is saying. So we'll come across some phrases and some passages in the book of Hebrews that sounds an awful lot like that. And indeed, many have accused Hebrews of being supersessionist, of basically funding this political uh, Christian um, supremacy. Now, I picked that word on purpose uh, for the title of the sermon because of this issue. I don't know if for any of you, the supremacy of Christ, if supremacy now sort of rings a certain bell, you hear the word supremacy, and you go, like, white supremacy? Like, what are we talking about supremacy here? And I picked it on purpose because that's the real challenge. How do you affirm, how do we confess the supremacy of Christ over everything revealed by angels through the law regarding Israel when Jews don't affirm that. And it makes the supremacy start to sound a little awkward, a little bit challenging. Supreme in what sense? Well, I think we're going to see that it's supreme in a very different way than the supremacy that Nazi Germany had in mind. But it's supremacy nonetheless. And that's where the challenge lies. And then the word worldview I'll use a little bit later, and so I just wanted to make sure we're clear on what that is as well. Assumptions by which we understand reality. Okay, so so there are things at work unconsciously in us that allow us to think in the first place and to think in certain ways and that's to a large extent what Hebrews is trying to build out for us it's trying to change the way that we see reality now in these last days we see through the word of a son That wasn't always the case. We couldn't always see the world in that way. But now we can. So, something novel follows. All right, let me do just a little bit of explaining of Midrash, of the foreign style that we're going to deal with as we go, so that John and John don't have to mess with that later. They can just go, remember back when? Okay, Hebrews is to a large extent an ancient midrash of Psalm 110.4. So if you'd like, turn over and I'll read Psalm 110 to you, uh, the first four verses. The first three verses are some of the most commonly cited in the New Testament. This is the church's go-to Old Testament text for understanding Jesus. And Jesus himself actually cites this text to sort of mess with his opponents. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves willingly on the day you lead your forces on the holy mountain. From the womb of the morning, like dew, your youth will come to you. So, that was really typical. But, evidently, most of the early church stopped right there. And the writer of Hebrews goes, well, what about the next verse? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? What does that mean? If this is talking about Jesus, and that's how we read the Old Testament now, because in these last days, he's spoken to us through a son, and so all of the words before that only make sense in light of the word spoken by a son. That's how we understand what this means. What in the world is a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Melchizedek is the number one candidate for the most mysterious figure in the Old Testament. 
number one candidate. Um, the, f the first paper that I wrote in graduate school was on Melchizedek. The assignment was, a, it was an introductory course in theological research, and the assignment was you have to do research on something that is like commonly misunderstood or hard to understand, like something that isn't a settled matter, you know, something that isn't a sermon topic all the time. So I was like, okay, I'll do Melchizedek. And so let me tell you what the consensus is about Melchizedek. I don't know what that guy is. No clue. No clue. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, the meaning of his name. This is the king to whom Abraham, God's elect, pays homage, who comes to his rescue. This is the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, before, long before God's people enter the promised land. This is a figure of mystery and symbolism as much as anything. He's a symbol of a kingship in Jerusalem that predates David, that predates Abraham, predates God's people. You can see how that would be interesting to talk about to the Hebrews, God's people. And so there's this order of Melchizedek that the author's going to compare to the, the order of the Aaronic priesthood, the, the priests in the line of Aaron who do the sacrifices in the tabernacle and in the temple. Well, that comparison is going to follow a style of argumentation that is um, really well known even to us we sometimes say things like, if this is the case, how much more than that other thing, right? There's a comparison that goes from weaker to stronger. The Hebrews, the, the rabbis refer to this as kal vachomer, the light and the substantial or the heavy, okay? You'd make a comparison in order to extrapolate a point. The Romans referred to it in another way as an argument, a minore ad maius, from the lesser to the greater. Right? But this is a common way of arguing. That's what this book is doing over and over and over and over and over. From the lesser to the greater. Not in order to diminish or dismiss the lesser, but in order to understand the implications of the greater the supremacy of the Son. Okay, so this interpretive method that we're going to see in Hebrews is known as typology. A type is a representation or a reflection of reality. That reality has a technical term too. It's anti-type. But the point is that typology is an incredibly common method of interpretation in the first century among Jews, and that's what this author is doing. This argument from the lesser to the greater is a kind of typological argument in which the type is the lesser and the anti-type, the reality it represents, is the greater. This starts from a text that we've recently explored. Exodus uh, 25.40. See that you make them according to the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. Now we talked about how the tabernacle is this earthly representation of God's heavenly presence. And you have all of the symbols that are telling you that that's what this is. And you have the, you have the, the cherubim guarding the presence of God and the light emanating from God, and so on and so forth. We, we, we explored that not so long ago. But the text specifically says this, that God shows, he shows Mo Moses a pattern, right? So you make this according to the pattern, 
And the word for that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is type. It's tupo. Okay? And this is exactly why Jews thought in this way, that there are heavenly realities and earthly reflections of those realities. And that what we understand about earthly things, there's so much more to understand about their heavenly reality. So just to run through a, a list of these really quickly. Um, in the same way, Hebrews assumes the distinction between earthly representations, which are light things, and heavenly realities, which are substantial things. The imprint of God versus God's being. Right? Imprint being a stamp. Right? It's like the, an imprint on a coin being the exact image according to a mold that imprints that image. But it's not the thing itself. Unfulfilled rest and ultimate rest. The tent built by mortals, that is the tabernacle, and the true tent, which is also called a sketch, a shadow, a copy versus a heavenly reality. The old covenant and the new covenant. Not a radical break, but rather a greater manifestation, the new in relation to the old. Mosaic law is a shadow versus a true form of realities. That's the phrasing that's used. Okay, so, foreign indeed, and I'm sorry, but this is the, like, this, you, can, you can read it without it, but I defy you to understand it without it. So we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Okay. A need for caution. Um, I've already mentioned the problem with supremacy. What we're after is nuance. There's a yes and a no here. There's continuity and discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Continuity is pretty radical. It's pretty radical. Just look at chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. Right? These are the faithful that the author is commending to the church. They're not has-beens. They're the people. In the former days, what was spoken through the prophets is still the Word of God. It's just that in the last days, He's spoken a new Word by which we understand all the others. So continuity and discontinuity, and ultimately what we want, church, is to bear humble witness in our confession of the supremacy of Christ. And the reason that this is a challenge, and it's a challenge I think we're going to grow in as we study the book of Hebrews, the reason this is a challenge is because the particularity of the claim is so scandalous. It is scandalous to people of other faiths. And that includes, at this juncture in history, people who do not have faith in Jesus who are Jewish. It just does. The scandal of saying, now the promises of God, the Word of God, the being of God is to be found in Jesus of Nazareth. And that particular... C.S. Lewis has this, this beautiful turn of phrase. He, he talks about the increasing narrowing of election from Abraham to David to the remnant till at last, he says, a Jewish girl at her prayers. That final narrowing, so specific that the confession of the church is we believe 
in Jesus. Jesus. Not the law. Not the people of Israel. Not the Davidic kingship. Jesus. So that scandal causes us a little bit of tension. The World Council of Churches Conference on World Mission and Evangelism wrote a number of years ago, in the 80s, when they began to delve more deeply into interreligious dialogue, these words. I think they're fitting. We cannot point to any other way of salvation than Jesus Christ. At the same time, we cannot put any limit on God's saving power. There is a tension between these affirmations which we acknowledge and cannot resolve. I want, I want you to feel comfortable in that tension. Well, I want you to feel that tension, whether it's comfortable or not. To be okay with that tension. To understand that the book of Hebrews is not engaged in uh, judgment. Judgment belongs to the Word at the end of all things. Uh, judgment will sort out the nuances and the tensions and the difficulties. Not our concern. But we recognize that two things are true for us. It is true that Christ is supreme. That in Jesus, a word has been spoken that is spoken nowhere else. And we re recognize that that very word is the radical grace of God that saves that does far more than we ask or imagine. And so, we don't try to resolve it. We just confess. Uh, Leslie Newbigin, for my money, uh, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, he says this, What is unique about the Bible is the story which it tells with its climax in the story of the incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. If that story is true, then it is unique and also universal in its implications for all human history. It is, in fact, the true outline of world history. Now feel the weight of this, church. If that story is true, which you confessed in your baptism... It is the true story for the whole world. The truth about the supremacy of Christ is true for everyone, not only those who believe. Christ is that. He is the Word. And so, we humbly confess. We confess to the world. Jesus is the reflection of the glory of God and the imprint of his very being. He is that. No one else is. That's our confession. So, the gist of Hebrews. In these last days, invites us to read Scripture in light of the last things. That's what we're going to be practicing. We're going to be reading Scripture in light of what's finally revealed. The reflection and imprint invites us into a deep reflection on the relationship between what we understand about Jesus and what we understand about following Jesus. What it means to be the image of God. And when he had made purification, invites us to a deep reflection on the relationship between what Jesus has done to perfect us 
and the process of perfection that requires our perseverance. The process of transformation, of becoming, that the Hebrew author is going to characterize as a pilgrimage and a race, both of which require faithful endurance. So, three concluding summaries of each of these. In these last days, we understand all of Scripture's witness in light of the word God speaks through the Son. According to this word, we make sense of our lives on the journey toward the kingdom of God that is both now and not yet. Worldview. This is how we make sense of our lives on the journey with Jesus through this word. We understand Jesus to be the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. Therefore, as creatures made in the image of God, that's us, our discipleship to Jesus follows from his demonstration of what it means to be human. This is the exact imprint of God's very being. And it is no coincidence that the way Genesis characterizes human beings is the image and likeness of God. Only, it's not very exact with us. And lastly, we understand our salvation to be the work of Christ who as the great high priest purified us from all sin, therefore, here's the word of encouragement, we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. That's the invitation of the book of Hebrews. To understand deeply where we are in time and space. Who we are in relation to Jesus and where we're going on the journey with Him. Let's pray.